Hello everyone and welcome to the January 21st edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Skarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today and let's get started with our litigation report. A new WCAB unbanked decision rejects jurisdiction over an NFL player's claim. Here's what happened in the case of Dennis McKinley versus the Arizona Cardinals and the Travelers Indemnity Company. McKinley played professional football for four years with the Arizona Cardinals ending in 2003. The Cardinals are an NFL team based in Arizona. During his four years of employment, the team played a total of 80 games, 40 of them in Arizona, and the remainder in 16 other states, including seven games in California. He filed an application in California in 2010, alleging that he injured multiple body parts as a result of cumulative injury while playing for the Cardinals. The Cardinals argued that the WCAB should decline to hear his claim because each of the three employment contracts he signed with the Cardinals contains a forum selection clause that agrees to file claims in Arizona and under Arizona law and in no other state. The work comp judge found that the WCAB has jurisdiction over applicants' claim, but that applicants' contacts with California are not sufficient to warrant exercising the board's jurisdiction in light of applicants' contractual agreement with his employer to file his claims in Arizona. The Cardinals' home base is in Arizona, and that is where the team is headquartered. Applicant regularly trained and practiced at the team's facility in Tempe, Arizona, and he spent the substantial majority of his work time in that state. Applicant was not a resident of California when he contracted to play football for the Cardinals, and his contracts of employment were made in Arizona. The majority of applicant's work duties were performed in Arizona, where he regularly practiced, and where the Cardinals played 40 of their 80 games during the period of his contract employment. In addition, 33 of the other 40 games were played in states other than California. Applicant argued that because he paid California income tax for games that were played in the state, he has a due process right to have his workers' compensation claim adjudicated by the WCAB. However, no authority holds that payment of state income tax requires the WCAB to adjudicate an employee's claim for workers' compensation, and tax law does not control how California's system of workers' compensation is administered. The work comp judge ordered that applicant take nothing on his claim. The WCAB affirmed the take nothing and dismissal in an en banc decision. The WCAB reasoned that since applicant alleged that each time and each and every time in which he played a game contributed to the injurious exposure that caused his cumulative injury, at least 16 other states besides California could have concurrent jurisdiction over the claim for his workers' compensation benefits. In view of his limited connection with California and in light of the Arizona Forum, that applicant and the Cardinals reasonably identified in their employment contracts, the WCAB declined to exercise jurisdiction over his claim for workers' comp. With respect to public policy issues raised by the applicant, the WCAB concluded that in the special circumstances of this case, the California has a stronger public policy interest in following the party's forum selection clause 
than it does in exercising jurisdiction over applicants' claim for workers' compensation. The WCB concluded by stating their concern about court congestion and the overburdening of already strained judicial resources. The NFL consists of 32 teams playing in 23 states and occasionally in foreign countries. Each club is allowed a maximum of 53 players on their roster. Because three NFL teams are domiciled in California, players from all of the 29 other teams could potentially claim that they incurred some portion of accumulative injury in California merely because they played one or more games in the state. In fact, numerous claims have been filed in California by professional football players and other professional athletes, and those claims impose a substantial burden on the WCAB's limited resources. The Los Angeles Superior Court issued an order denying a petition filed by an applicant seeking court approval to cash in his rights to a structured settlement payment in a workers' compensation case. It is not uncommon in large workers' compensation or personal injury cases to resolve the claim by way of a structured settlement. The settlement is typically funded by an annuity purchased from another insurance company for a lump sum of money. The annuity pays a regular benefit to the claimant over his or her lifetime and may even offer a residual payment to the heirs of the claimant. There are advantages to structured settlements for both parties. The lump sum paid by the carrier is less than the total aggregate of future payments, thus there is cost savings. The carrier no longer has to keep an open file as the future payments are paid directly by the annuity company. The applicant receives an aggregate dollar settlement higher than what the workers' comp benefit would have been and the annuity payments are typically tax-free. However, after a structured settlement, some applicants have second thoughts and want to get a lump sum of cash for their structured settlement. Indeed, there are financial companies advertising on television offering cash for the assignment of a structured settlement. It would appear that the petition of applicant Rudy Andrade is an example of such a case. Fortress Funding LLC was seeking to buy out his annuity-funded structured settlement for a discount of over 13%. An agreement such as this requires court approval pursuant to the California Structured Settlement Act. In this case, the annuity company opposed the petition and the Superior Court denied the petition to transfer the annuity to Fortress Funding. In its opposition, the annuity issuer argued, among other things, that the California Structured Settlement Transfer Act, contained in California Insurance Code Section 10134, under which the petition was brought, did not apply to transfers of workers' compensation payments. The proposed transfer contravened the California Labor Code Section 4900, prohibiting assignment of workers' compensation benefits, and they further argued that the proposed transfer would be contrary to a prior order of the WCAB, which approved the underlying workers' compensation compromise and release agreement that expressly prohibited assignment of the payments. And now our fraud report. The Unity Surgical Outpatient Center fraud trial pending in Orange County is expected to take at least six months. However, two administrators pleaded guilty to 101 fraud and other charges related to a case that prosecutors say was the largest medical fraud operation in the nation. 
Three others who are charged are expected to go to trial later this year. Four of the five defendants already were tried and convicted in November after a 10-week trial on charges either of filing false tax returns or failing to file taxes or both. A doctor also charged in the case has not been tried. The four defendants already prosecuted in the first phase of their case were personnel connected to Unity Surgical Outpatient Center, where healthy people from all over the United States were recruited for unneeded surgeries, including tummy tucks and hysterectomies, generating $154 million in billings to insurance companies. The four were sentenced in December to prison terms on the tax evasion convictions in order to pay millions in restitution in the first phase of the case. The Superior Court judge told these four that he would add no additional time to their sentences if they pled guilty to the fraud counts. The judge said then he felt the tax convictions and the fraud charges were all part of the same ugly, expensive, felonious scenario. The fraud case is expected to last more than six months, which would make it one of the longest criminal trials in Orange County. The San Bernardino County District Attorney said that 54-year-old Jose Cortez of Fontana has been charged with workers' compensation fraud and perjury. In October 2010, Cortez received an occupational injury as a result of his duties as a gardener for Errol Barrios and Associates Landscaping. A large tree branch had fallen and landed on Cortez, causing injury. He was then transported to an area hospital where he was treated under the workers' compensation system and released with minor work restrictions. The following year, private insurance investigators working on a tip began conducting video surveillance of Mr. Cortez. On six different occasions, he was observed performing his normal duties as a gardener with no obvious signs of pain or discomfort. In 2012, Investigators from the San Bernardino County District Attorney's Office Workers' Compensation Insurance Fraud Unit conducted a thorough criminal investigation. During their surveillance, they observed and photographed Cortez performing his normal duties as a gardener with no obvious signs of pain or discomfort. However, Cortez was still collecting insurance benefits after reporting that he could not perform his work-related duties. Cortez was taken into custody outside his residence without incident. He was transported and booked at the San Bernardino County Sheriff's West Valley Detention Center. Cortez was arraigned in San Bernardino Superior Court, where he entered a plea of not guilty. If convicted as charged, he faces eight years in county prison. Federal authorities have made arrests in a $5 million fake pay stub disability fraud scheme. Three of nine defendants were arrested in a continuing investigation into a Sutter County fraudulent unemployment and disability benefits scheme. 50-year-old Balkar Singh, 37-year-old Harvinder Kaur, and 34-year-old Haringer Kar Thandi, all of Yuba City, will be arraigned before a U.S. magistrate judge. In a 36-count indictment, a federal grand jury charged nine defendants with participating in a scheme to defraud the state of California of unemployment and disability benefits. The remaining defendants, 62-year-old Jit Kaur, 41-year-old Dajit Kaur Sangha, 54-year-old Sukwinder Kaur, 
44-year-old Darshan Rani, all of Yuba City, and 73-year-old Avatar Kaur Baines of Roseville, and 56-year-old Mo Pegany of Ceres will appear in court at a later date. This is the third indictment in an ongoing investigation. Six defendants were indicted last May, and six others were indicted last September. According to the first indictment, the defendants controlled a series of companies that were reported to the Employment Development Department as farm labor contractors. The cons sold fake pay stubs to other people in the community and used the companies they controlled to report false wages for the individuals who purchased those pay stubs. The cons at times instructed the purchasers how the fake paid stubs could be used to fraudulently claim unemployment and disability benefits. Over the course of the conspiracy, the defendants reported wages for over 400 separate individuals that resulted in more than 2,000 fraudulent claims for unemployment and disability benefits. The loss in this case is more than $5 million. If convicted, the defendants face a maximum statutory penalty of 20 years in prison and a $250,000 fine for each count. This case is the product of a joint investigation by the FBI, the Department of Labor, Office of Inspector General, and the Employment Development Department Investigations Division. And now, our medical report. According to a new study, patients and their families are rarely told when hospitals make mistakes with their medicines. Researchers found that most medication mistakes did not harm patients, but those that did were more likely to happen in intensive care units. And ICU patients and families were less likely to be told about the errors than patients in other hospital units. For the most part, researchers say these findings were in keeping with what the existing literature tells us about the where and how of medication errors in a hospital. The most surprising finding was what is done about these medical errors, at least in the immediate time around when they occur. More than half of the time, no actions are taken after the error. In fact, only a third of the hospital staff who made the reported mistakes were immediately told about their errors. And the patient and or their family is immediately informed when an error occurs barely 2% of the time despite literature supporting full disclosure and their desire to be promptly informed. The vast majority of the mistakes, about 98%, did not lead to a patient being harmed, but those that did were more likely to happen in the ICUs. About 4% of the errors in ICUs ended up harming a patient compared with only 2% of errors in non-ICUs causing harm. Of errors that may have led to patient deaths, 18 occurred in ICUs and 92 in non-ICU areas of the hospital. The authors of the study say that's not surprising given the fragile condition of ICU patients and the more intensive treatment they receive. In ICUs and non-ICUs, errors of omission, failing to give a patient the medication, were the most common error. Harmful errors most often involved devices like IV lines and mistakes in calculating medication dosages. Recent research has found that instituting a blame-free reporting system in hospitals increases the number of reported mistakes. 
All artificial hip implant implants carry risks, including wear of the component material. Metal-on-metal metal hip implants have unique risks in addition to the general risk of all hip implants. The metal-on-metal metal hip implants, the metal ball, and the metal cup slide against each other during walking or running. Metal can also be released from other parts of the implant where two implant components connect. Metal release will cause some tiny metal particles to wear off the device into the space around the implant. Wear and corrosion at the connection between the metal ball and taper of the stem may also occur. Some of the metal ions from the metal implant or from the metal particles will enter the bloodstream. Orthopedic surgeons take several precautions before and during hip replacement surgery to try and optimize the way in which the ball and socket rub against each other so that fewer wear particles are produced. However, there is no way to fully avoid the production of some metal particles. Over time, the metal particles around some implants can cause damage to bone and or tissue surrounding the implant and joint. Soft tissue damage may lead to pain, implant loosening, device failure, and the need for revision surgery. International regulatory agencies have issued alerts and safety communications related to MOM hip implants. Johnson & Johnson, the biggest manufacturer of all metal devices, recalled its ASR hip implant in 2010 following safety problems. Smith & Nephew withdrew a component of one of its all-metal artificial hip systems last June following higher level of patient problems with the device. And Stryker Corporation began recalling some components of its implant in July due to risks associated with corrosion. Other hip implant makers include Zimmer Holdings and Wright Medical Group. The FDA is recommending that asymptomatic patients with MOM hip implants continue to follow up with their orthopedic surgeon every one to two years to monitor for early signs of change in their hip status. A new CWCI study says that allowing third-party payer access to the California Controlled Substance Utilization Review and Evaluation System, or CURIES, would improve quality of care and strengthen utilization and cost control over opioid prescriptions dispensed to injured workers. This would cut California's workers' compensation claim costs by an estimated $57.2 million. Excessive use of prescription painkillers has become a nationwide public health problem and a huge cost driver in California's workers' compensation system. Highly addictive Schedule II narcotics such as OxyContin and fentanyl have been widely used even for relatively minor sprain and strain injuries. In 2011, the DWC adopted a chronic pain management guideline to help control the use of these drugs, but they have continued to account for a growing proportion of workers' compensation prescriptions. One tool California does have to combat prescription drug abuse is the Curie's database. It's three-year-old electronic prescription monitoring program run by the Department of Justice. Curie's allows doctors, pharmacists, and law enforcement to track the prescription history of patients receiving opioids to identify fraud and abuse patterns. 
many workers' compensation stakeholders assert that access to the Curie's data, coupled with enhanced medical cost containment strategies, could significantly reduce inappropriate opioid prescriptions dispensed to injured workers. However, since a $70 million cut in the California Department of Justice budget was announced late in 2011, the state has struggled to come up with the $3.7 million a year needed to fund the Curie's database. The CWCI estimates that 23% of the 500,000 California job injury claims in accident year 2011 involved opioid prescriptions. Debate over the funding of Curie's continues as Attorney General Kamala Harris urged Governor Brown to restore funding for the program in light of the state's improving budget picture. And in regulatory news, the DWC has scheduled a public meeting to discuss the issues related to drafting regulations regarding the SB863 changes to medical provider networks. This is the first opportunity for the public to provide input to the division on regulations to implement MPN changes under SB 863. Specifically, the following issues will be addressed. New MPN applicants, the reapproval process, petition to process for MPN, suspension revocation, and administrative penalties. Also, they will discuss MPN audits, investigations, and the independent medical review process. The meeting will be held on Wednesday, January 30, 2013 from 10 a.m. till noon at the Elihu Harris State Office Building Auditorium located at 1515 Clay Street in Oakland. The DWC is seeking public input on payment ground rule topics as it moves forward with developing a resource-based relative value scale or the RBRVS payment system. Senate Bill 863 directs the DWC's Administrative Director to adopt a physician fee schedule based upon the federal RBRVS used in the Medicare payment system. In the RBRVS-based system, relative value units interact with payment ground rules and the conversion factor to determine the maximum fee in light of the resources to provide the service. SB 863 provides that the physician fee schedule shall include payment ground rules that differ from Medicare, including as appropriate payment of consultation codes, as well as payment of evaluation and management services provided during a global period of surgery. The division is seeking public input on which ground rules should differ from Medicare in the new fee schedule and why. The forum can be found by clicking the current forum's link on the top of the DWC Forums page. Comments will be accepted at the forum through February 8, 2013. And with that, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or iPod by searching for the WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.